Amen. You guys may be seated. <clears throat> it's great to be with you this morning. I'm Christine. I'm the children's pastor. Uh, but I went to high school summer camp, and we got back yesterday. So I'm really sorry about my voice. Um, but my team came in second place. Our team came. We were that close to no, 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 no big. <laughs> because you know I didn't yell loud enough. You know. Um, anyway, but no, we're really glad you're here this morning. And uh, we had a great time at camp. If you had teenagers that went, uh, it was a blast. Went to Hume Lake. Uh, Pastor Marco and his wife Jordan did a great job. I, I, I hope you appreciate them. If you haven't had a chance to meet them yet, uh, be sure you do that. But uh, they just did a great job. We had several kids receive Christ as their Savior, which is great. And just a great time of growth for our kids. So, yeah, you can clap for that. That's what you can clap for. All right. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, am, I want to apologize profusely about my voice. I really am sorry about that. <clears throat> um, but uh, we are continuing in our series. We're doing a, a, a summer series called Tell Me a Story. It's kind of the idea of campfire stories from the Old Testament and uh, just highlights of, of some things that God has done uh, throughout history. And today's is a little bit different, I suppose, because... It's, um, it's kind of a bigger arching. It's a 70-year story, okay? So we're going to get a 70-year story today. And um, anyway, but I wanted to introduce it just by this idea of homesickness. Has anybody ever have been homesick? Yeah, maybe when you were a little kid. Yeah. Is that Cole out there? Yeah, Cole's like, I'm homesick. Yeah. So, but, and we don't get that much at high school camp, thankfully. Um, but it does happen once in a while at kids camp. We didn't have it this year, which was fun. Um, but, you know, there's not a whole lot you can say. There's not a whole lot you can do. Actually, calling home is worse. Uh, that makes it worse. And so there's just no relief for it, you know, because you can't convince them that it's okay. Well, uh, my, my first bout with homesickness was at, uh, when I was 11 years old. I just joined the Boy Scouts. And we went to Pinecrest Lake, and we were going to go camping. The problem was it was in the snow. So we went in February, January, February. It was a snow trip. And so my first trip, you know, you, you kind of stamp out in the snow where you're going to put your tent, and then you put your tent on top of the snow. And, I, and just so you know, I hate to be cold. Like, I'm not that guy. I'd much rather have 100 degrees than 50 degrees. So I'm, uh, I, I hate to be cold, but it's my first little trip out there, 11 years old. And uh, this is back before, of course, there's any good gear, or at least we didn't have any, you know, uh, it's the, the, the bad, awful gear, that kind of thing. Well, my friend Dave and CJ and I uh, went exploring, and who knew there's a lake at Pinecrest Lake? I didn't, because <laughs> it was all iced over and snowed over, and so it just looked like a big field out there, you know, of snow to play in, and so we just ventured off, and, and pretty soon I was walking out there, and I always went like that, and I fell through the ice about to my knee or so, and, and you know, of course, I'm freaking out, and it's like, ah, like this, you know, and of course, I'm walking deeper, and Dave and CJ are like, the shore's over here, you know, and so I made my way back, and um, uh, I think I, I had one pair of snow boots, and I'm not even sure I brought another pair of pants. Uh, I'm 11 years old, okay, um, and I'm a boy, and so, um, but I sat by the fire the rest of the weekend trying to dry off, I just couldn't get warm, and I learned an invaluable lesson um, on that camping trip is that there's a fine line between getting close enough to get dry and getting burned. Um, I learned where that line was on that week, uh, that weekend, again, I'm 11 years old. Uh, that night, I was crying, scared, freezing. My, my teeth were actually chattering together. I was so freezing. I, was, I woke my leader up to get an extra sleeping bag, um, and I just was homesick. I was just crying. I just wanted to go home, and there's just no relief until you get home. And I'm just thinking, 
You know, what is this? And I think we've all had bouts with this kind of feeling. You know, what is this wanting to be home? What is this need for security and familiarity and those we love? And, and then sometimes, even when we are home, it doesn't seem to last long enough. It seems like inherently we have this underlying fear that we're just alone, that we're away from our true home, and the world is just not right. And I think it just kind of wells up from this deep soul longing in our hearts for something more. I think there's a lot of us that experience it's a low-grade dissatisfaction that something's just not right. And the feeling that we were made for something more. We were made for something else. Went camping a couple of years ago at a place called White Rock, and it was this gorgeous, almost gorgeous sunset over this ridge, and it was reflecting on the water over this lake and everything. It wasn't frozen. It was the summertime. Uh, but it was reflecting on the lake, and, and you know, I just wanted to sit there and soak it in, and I, I could have stayed there for hours. I was just wishing I could have frozen time. And God was there. It was just a great little one-on-one with me and the Lord, <clears throat> this peace and security of the Father. And 10 minutes later, it was gone. The sun had set. It's gone, right? And, and just thinking there, I'm like, man, how many times there's all these good things in life, they just don't last. They're just fleeting. You know, I waited there and stuff. It was nice. But even then, if you stay out there an hour, it's just, it goes away. And I'm just thinking, you know, what would make this, what would make me think, though, that this should last longer? I'm in a world bound by time where nothing can really last. And what was I really wishing for? I was wishing for eternity, right? Because the earth is not our home. Even though we have a, a, it's been finely tuned by this beautiful creator to perfectly fit where human life is. But it doesn't feel like home all the time. This is, where I, you know, this is where I live, but something's kind of wrong here. And why does it feel like we were made for something else or somewhere else? And, and that why this existential angst sometimes that we're always longing for more? We feel like we don't belong here. Or that the earth was made for us, but we don't feel like we were made for it. Why so seldom this, this real deep peace and satisfaction and rest and content? I mean, why, why are relationships so difficult? Why is work difficult? Why, um, why do things that even like family or home or things like that that, that I do have that, that are supposed to bring me real joy so often, why do they make me so mad? Why do, I, why do I get upset? Those kinds of things. So what am I longing for? It's, it's home. Well, the Bible narrative uh, was formed by those who lived with their mindset shaped by a particular historical event. Like I said, it was a 70-year event. It's not a popular thing. It's not really all that well-known. You may have heard of the exile, and that's what you're filling is. It's the Babylonian exile. Sometimes they call it the captivity. But many of you have maybe heard about it, but I think there's probably very few that really understand its context in the story of Israel's Old Testament history. And so those who would compile the Old Testament, they carried with them the stories and poems and materials from earlier in their history. And it was that group that shaped the narrative of the story of the Bible. And so it became the lens through which they were going to tell the story of God and his people. And it's, it's really, you know, the exile is not something you would think of right away as this cornerstone event in the scriptures. But once you see it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. It's like one of those 3D pictures, you know, like you should have the 90s, you know, you go to the mall and you got those pictures and it just looks like a design and you kind of like look at it like this, you know, and oh, it's a dolphin jumping over a rainbow, you know, something like that, stupid. And it's like, once you see that three, I could never look at those. It was like one of them with a dolphin. But like, once you see it, then you, can, you can't stop seeing it. Like, oh, there's dolphins. That's all I see now, right? It's kind of like that, where I think once you see the exile in its proper context, you'll see that it was this pivotal moment in Israel's history. And it becomes the story by which the bigger story is told. 
It was 70 years that the Israelites spent out of the promised land and in Babylon. Um, when I talk to them with, about it with the kids, I always call it their 70-year time out. You know, the Israelites were completely disobedient. God said, go to your room and go to Babylon. For 70 years, I tell them, I said, listen, don't you ever be so disobedient. Your parents give you a 70-year time out, okay? Um, Anyway, but because of the exile, the Bible speaks with a certain voice. There's this voice of the writers of, an, of oppressed generations, not powerful elites. The Bible is not a book of powerful elites. That the Old Testament is a product of this, this group of people who have had centuries of enslavement and banishment. The story of a people who are searching for a true home. And then even decade, or centuries later, the Jesus movement would arise out of this persecuted religious minority. So that when Jesus comes along 500 years out the, after the exile, he's still using exile imagery to tell the story. Well, I, I love history. I was a history major in college. And I don't... Not so much the specific little things. I like like the overarching kind of larger sweeps of history. So I, I was thinking what might be good is for us to just do a, a little summary of Old Testament history. I know that a lot of you like the Old Testament freaks you out. And so you just don't read it a whole lot. Or, and it's hard to understand the history. So I'm going to give you just a real thumbnail sketch of the history because it's important to know how the exile falls into this. Okay. So, you know, gird up your loins. Here we go. Okay. Uh, we're just going to go fast. Okay. I'm going to have thousands of years of history in a couple of minutes. So um, here we go. Well, the first Genesis 1 through, 1 through 11 is generally kind of like a story of all of humanity. And then in Genesis 12, God specifically works through um, Abram, Abraham, about for the Jewish people. So it kind of starts in Genesis 12. He's actually called out, his family is called out of Babylon. So the first Israelite, the first Jew, the first Hebrew is, is actually a Babylonian. Well, things. So he emigrates to northwest to an area called Haran, and then later to Canaan, which will become the promised land of Israel, and the Jewish state today. And then, and then God promises to make him a great nation, to bless everybody who blesses him, to curse those who curse him, to give him the land. And he makes all these wonderful promises to Abraham as God's, to, as the father of God's people. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, you know, all that, right? And so he has, um, he has a son. Isaac, I make, the, I make the kids over there remember. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And we do this because they're remembering. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. The promise of all those promises flow through Isaac. And then to Jacob, Isaac's son is Jacob. His name gets changed to Israel, which means wrestling with God, wrestles with God, and so because Jacob had a wrestling bout with God. And then, and then he has a bunch of kids. Jacob has a bunch of kids, one of which was Joseph, the the. One of the youngest, the second of the youngest, who um, had the uh, multicolored coat. He was kind of his father's favorite. Brothers were jealous. So his brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt. So Joseph goes to Egypt. The rest of them are still in the promised land. Joseph rises to power in Egypt. And during that time, there's famine in the land of Israel. So the brothers come down and they go to Egypt. Eventually, the way it works out is all of the, all, the whole clan, the whole family moves to Egypt Initially, they had favor there, but over the next 400 years, they became slaves. They grew, 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 but they, they were slaves in the land of Egypt until Moses comes along. God calls Moses, says, let my people go. They part the Red Sea. They walk through. They're on their way back to the promised land. Um, they wander in the desert 40 years because of their disobedience, and they finally eventually get right up near the promised land. Moses dies, and his underling uh, Joshua takes over. They cross the Jordan River into the promised land. First city they meet. Your kids know this. <laughs> Jericho. Jericho, where the wall, they march around, the walls come tumbling down. They take over the entire, they, you know, kick out the Canaanites. They take over the entire um, 
you know, promised land. And then during that time, there are like judges, kind of local rulers, judges, guys like Gideon, Deborah, Samson, Jephthah, guys like that. And they would, you know, they would rule these local areas. And everybody says, well, hey, look at everybody else around us. They've all got king. We want a king. Well, God was supposed to be their king. So it kind of disappoints God a little bit. So he gives them Saul. Saul was a great warrior, tall guy, looks the part. Let's make him the king. Pretty awful king, actually. And so after him comes David. Now, we all know David. David becomes a king. He comes pretty much the height of the Israelite empire, power, influence, wealth. And so from that time, in fact, the promises of God were you know, the Messiah, Jesus, was going to be a, a, in the line of David. So they're constantly looking for another king like David. They can get back to their rise of power. Solomon, his son, takes over. Uh, powerful, even wise, powerful, expansive empire, basically. Uh, builds, builds a wonderful temple for them. But he does a lot of stupid things. The, the kingdom gets split after him. So you got 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. So the north is Israel. The south is Judah. Okay, you tracking? We good? Okay. Um, I know some of this is new to a lot of people, but anyway, but the, then after that, there's all these kings and there's all these years and years and years of these absolutely wicked kings, most of them wicked, a few good guys in there um, sprinkled throughout. The whole time the prophets are urging God's people, follow God, follow God. So they're talking about what's going to happen in the future. And part of the prophecy that's happening is if you guys don't get right, God's going to judge you. You have to get right, but they don't listen, of course. So in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes and attacks the northern tribes, takes them over. Part of their strategy when they conquered people was to intermingle with those people, and so they would interbreed, and so that's, out of that came the Samaritans. So if you're wondering why Jews and Samaritans hated each other, it's because the Jews thought that they were mixed breed with these evil, hated Assyrians. And so that's why even in Jesus' day, 700 years later, there was all this tension. Well then, um, the Assyrians fall to another empire, the Babylonian Empire. You've heard of the name Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Modern-day Iraq. Well, Babylon comes, and they then finally attack the southern kingdom. Never, they never thought it would happen. They thought, for sure, God's going to protect Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. God will know. So they didn't take their sin seriously. God allows the Babylonians to, in 586, attack and sack the city of um, Jerusalem. They burn the city. They sack the temple. They take all the goods away. They take tens of thousands of Israelites as refugees to Babylon. This is the exile, okay? At the time, this is the, there's prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. They're around that time. And so the, the exile is a 70-year Time out for all their disobedience that was warned about for years by the prophets, but they had hard hearts and would not listen. Um, they were relocated to work fields in the delta of the Tigris and Euphrates, these refugee camps. And so, but some like Daniel, who was kind of a more of a royal elite family, were able to work within the Babylonian court for um, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, a few decades later, Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. Of course, then they would fall to the Greeks, so it just one after the other, right? And they would give the Israelites permission to go back to the land, right? And so you've got guys like Nehemiah that would go back, and he rebuilt the wall. Ezra would go back. Uh, this guy whose name is Zerubbabel, how about that one? Um, and he goes back. But they, and so the, those people that came back to the land, those post-exile Jews, helped shape the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament. They patched together all the songs and stories and poems and literature from their history. It's like assembling all these pieces of an old, of old fabric into a quilt. 
that would be the story of the Old Testament. So the whole story of the Old Testament is viewed through the framework of exile, through a time of hopelessness, where they had spent centuries with a kind of arrogance, thinking that they were God's people. Surely God will take care of us. But their hearts were hard, and so God put them on that time out. It was quite a spanking, right? Um, for centuries of disobedience. But now they're back in the land asking all the identity questions of who are we? Why are we here? What are we about? What are we going to be doing? What are we rebuilding here? Is this home? And the beauty of the Bible, I believe, is that the Old Testament, you know, they got these, these thousands of year old narrative stories that we can read now and it still resonates with our spirit because our hearts long for a return to home. We're looking for our promised land. And it's really just heaven, okay? Now, we're not sure exactly what heaven is gonna look like. We just know we wanna be there, right? That I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not gonna be fat little babies strumming harps on clouds, which is awesome. Like, amen to that, right? Because I, I don't really wanna go there. So, um, you know, that doesn't sound fun to me. Um, so don't put those pictures up in your house, okay? Just don't. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, so um, anyway, but... Um, but we're not sure exactly what heaven, how great it's going to be, but we know it's going to be awesome. We know it's going to be a place where the sunsets last forever, where there's no frozen lakes to fall into. We know there's going to be peace and security and familiarity and comfort and rest and security and, or, um, or intimacy and joy. Where we're going to be with Jesus face to face, where there's no relational conflict, there's no work drama, there's no desire for more. We're just home. You see, the exile is our story. We're living in the now and the not yet. It's, it's like, so what do we do now, though, in the meantime? How do we live for Christ in exile when we're away from our true home, heaven? Now, there's, some, there's a lot of nuances here in what we're talking about. And so I'm going to give you like four kind of options that people usually fall into as far as, okay, so how do we live in this world um, when we're away from home, okay? I got these ideas from... Um, there's a great guys there online called The Bible Project. I'm going to try to post a video later today that um, kind of summarizes a lot of these ideas. And they had a podcast. It's fantastic stuff. So I got a lot of the ideas from them. But so what are our choices for an exile ethic in this world? Okay, the first one would option would be soft capitulation. <coughs> soft capitulation. This is the idea of being complicit with the ways of a foreign land, to give into the world system, that there's no Christian distinctive. We're just going to resemble the culture, right? So what happens when people capitulate and they, they, they're complicit is they end up serving lesser gods, hoping that the world and those around us that we know that don't love God will love us, accept us, and they'll like us and include us. In the, in the world system that's going on here. And these would be people who are just kind of satisfied with the earth as our home, and so we're just going to make the best of it. On the other end of the spectrum, really, is open conflict. This is the second one, open conflict. This is kind of this constantly fighting and rebelling by any means necessary. They'll say, you know, this world is all we have, so we have to fight to preserve it. The earth is our home. We got to defend no matter what. All right? And so this is, I believe, why our culture, I mean, is there not open conflict? My goodness. All up and down our culture on things. Because I believe our, so many in our secular culture, um, uh, they, this is all they have. They're trying to create a utopia here. They're trying to create the better world or the, their idea of the better world here. And so they fight to the death, whatever it takes kind of mentality. And because and they have to, if you think about it, because if, if you don't believe that there's a God, if you believe in materialism, 
that matter is all there is. There is no soul. If you believe in evolution and that, the, that we're all just random chaos and chance and we're all just moist robots, okay, that, that there is no soul, that this is as, heaven, as close to heaven as you get. So they're gonna fight for it. And for us who know Christ, we know that this is not heaven. This is as close to hell as we get, right? Well, another somewhere on there, that spectrum is fearful cloister. You know what cloister means? That means kind of hide yourself away. So this is a bunker mentality. This would be people that, you know, I'm going to shield myself from the world system. The earth is not my home, so I don't want to be tainted by any of it. Um, I I'm not, can't really make a difference here. The world is, is, is corrupt, and so I need to just survive untainted by it. And unfortunately, some people go here, and they go into a Christian bubble, and they don't want anything to do with any, any worldly things. They don't want to have any influence necessarily in the world. And so they bubble themselves off from anybody that doesn't know Christ, and they lack any influence at all. And so the fourth option, and obviously this is the one I'm hoping for, is limited cooperation. And this is going to need some explaining, but here's the idea, is that you, we use wisdom to make our earth, obviously, our temporary home while we live in exile. We pray for the peace of it, even though knowing that we don't belong to it. We work for human flourishing here, knowing that God created this world to be perfect, but our humanity's sin uh, messed it up, but we can redeem parts of it here and there in our world. And so while we wait to be brought to our true home, we are just passing through. We are sojourners. We are temporary residents bringing light to dark. And so what we're going to do today, I'm going to show you three examples of this exile ethic, this limited cooperation, and how the way of the exile, and it takes a lot of balance as we try to be like Christ. So our first example, number one, is Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah actually lived through the exile. He was an old prophet. Um, he was there as a prophet when the Babylonians came to conquer. He was the one, the voice um, beforehand crying out, get right with God before God judges you. He's actually known as the weeping prophet because he watched his beloved Jerusalem burn and he tried to warn everybody of coming judgment and they just simply would not listen. And so as the exiles were all dragged away to Babylon, he stayed behind being an old man. Ezekiel was a prophet that went with the exiles to Babylon, but Jeremiah stayed in, in this destroyed city with a few stragglers. And in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the, to the exiles and he addresses it to surviving elders, priests, prophets, and people. So he's giving instructions from God saying, this is how you live in exile. And so this is what he says, Jeremiah 29, four through seven. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it, prof if it prospers, you too will prosper. So which of those four options is it? Do you see it? It's number four. It's limited cooperation. We're going to break it down a little bit. But he says, build homes, plant gardens, get married, pray for the good of the city, seek its welfare, redeem a bad situation, take the good gifts of the Lord has given you as reminders of home. It's not just a settled existence. It's a peace ethic to live in a time of exile. And what it's not is capitulation. Because some would have gone there and just capitulated and just gone full bore into Babylonian society with all of its excesses. And they would have said, well, I guess Marduk is more powerful than Yahweh. 
the Babylonian, you know, the Babylonian God wins. It's not conflict either. Jeremiah is not saying to fight. In fact, Jeremiah's rival prophet, a false prophet named Hananiah, he promised that they would break Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's yoke, that he calls for war and resistance and, and open and frequent rebellion. And he says to these zealots, he says, try to defeat Babylon by the sword. But they couldn't do that. You can't, you're not gonna be Babylon. And there was no cloistering either because Jeremiah is not saying don't hide away but build a life there. You see, Jeremiah called for a limited cooperation. He says, you are in this city for 70 years, but this is not your home. And so for the time that you are here, pray for it. Build, prosper, marry, cooperate. Even though the city, even though Babylon itself is evil, and don't give in to the evil, but cooperate in a limited way. And as soon as they ask you to put Babylon above your God, that's where it stops, right? He says, you, you don't, you refuse at that point. So it's our same attitude toward being on earth, to live life fully as if we're just passing through and this is temporary. This bears out a little bit more in number two. It's Daniel. Daniel was actually, like I said, he's one of the refugees. He, he gets brought over in exile, but because he was from a royal family, he got to go into the court. He was just a young man, probably a teenager, and he had three friends. So it's right after the first Babylonian attack of Jerusalem where they plundered the city and the temple. Many were taken into exile. So Daniel, if you'll remember, he, he later takes a Babylonian named uh, Belteshazzar. And he's got the three friends, and they took the Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Um, actually, I think that was their, I can't remember if it was Hebrew names or, or, or um, Babylonian names. But here they are as young men dragged to um, a distant country, removed from their families, and they're going to serve in their captor's court. And so the story of Daniel is this perfect example of the exile ethic. So you remember, may remember from Pastor Mike did a series on Daniel, and he talked about it, where if you're familiar with the story, you know that they, they took Babylonian names. They dressed like Babylonians. They learned the Babylonian language. They learned their history. They learned the literature. But as soon as they were being trained in the court, to, you know, they cooperated, but in a limited way, because as soon as they were asked to eat the Babylonian food, which would be against their Jewish kosher laws, they declined. They didn't want to defile themselves. And they weren't jerks about it. They just asked to stand on their convictions to eat vegetables. And they, because of that, God blessed them. And so Daniel and the others, they rise in the king's court, partly because God had given them the ability to interpret dreams and things. But then the, at one instance, the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were called like everybody else to bow down and worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, um, the statue of the king, along with everybody else. But they defy the order. So as everybody else is bowing down, they're standing tall because they say, I will cooperate, but limited to when you ask me to worship a false god, I won't do it. And so they stand they get thrown into the fiery furnace and they survive it and God is praised. And then you've got Daniel ordered not to pray to God and he defies the order and he survives the lion's den and God is praised. See, in all these instances, they'll say, we will agree to cooperate in Babylon until you ask us to put Babylon above our God. That's where it stops. And see, if they had capitulated, they would have just eaten the food. They would have bowed to Nebuchadnezzar. They would have not prayed. They would have just given into the culture, say, well, I guess they won. I guess Marduk is a stronger God. And see, so many in our culture, I think today, have given in. They've just said, you know, well, I guess the social revolutionaries won. Let's just go ahead and mirror the progressives and, and maybe they'll like us. 
Maybe they'll allow us in. Maybe they'll join us, let us join the party. And if it had been open conflict, though, if that's what they had chosen, try to subvert, they would try to maybe bring down Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but it, it would not have been through the court, the king's court. They would have had no influence, and they probably would have just been killed. Right? They would, they would have not have, have seen Nebuchadnezzar actually humble himself through their influence. But, and so many today, we see it. They fight, they resist, they legislate, they demonstrate, they resist, they do all these things. But, and so because their hearts are here, this is the utopia they're trying to create. And so you have to fight for it and resist and make sure that, this, and this happens on both ends, to make sure that they're creating the Eden, the paradise, the promised land here because this is all there is. But if Daniel and his friends had chosen the third and fearfully cloistered, they would just remain hidden. They would have just stayed in the refugee camp. They would have had no influence whatsoever on their culture. And so instead, Daniel chooses limited cooperation. It's this wonderful mix of like loyalty and subversion. He says, I'll cooperate. I'll take the Babylonian name and clothes and language and history, but it's limited. I'm not going to do the food. I won't give ultimate allegiance to worship this empire. It's not passive. It's actively engaged, but not, he realizes that not everything is a battle. And so when he resists, it's on ultimate issues. So he has a witness with the king and he sees Nebuchadnezzar's heart change and he earns the king's trust and he has influence but in times when the line is just too much to cross and worship other God, he defies it. And it's this wonderfully wise strategy, I think, for living in exile when you're out of place and you're not at your home. It's the same call of Jeremiah's words to say, I'll be loyal to Babylon. I'll seek its peace, its shalom. Um, I'll contribute to its well-being. I'll build houses, plant gardens, and marry. But there are moments where my, my identity as God's people supersedes being a part of this world system. And this theme just runs all throughout Scripture. She writes the dolphin jumping over the rainbow. Now you see it everywhere, right? And so I want you to see if you fast forward all the way to the, to the New Testament, you've got them still using exile language, even though they're not in exile anymore. They're back in the land. They have been for centuries. So you've got 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. And listen to what he says. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers, exile language of this world, to abstain from sinful desires, He's saying, don't capitulate. Which war against your soul lives such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is 600 years later. And he addresses it to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's who he was addressing the letter to. And so you've got people that are living in those places thinking, I'm not scattered. <laughs> I've lived in Cappadocia my whole life. <laughs> I've never been out of my own town, right? And they're like, I'm not an alien and stranger. But Peter uses that language to refer to them and say, you're a, no, you're in exile, even in your, though you're living in your hometown. Aliens and strangers in the world. He says, yeah, Pontus, Galatia, that's where your house is. But that's not where home is. And it refers to the church in Babylon. There was no Babylon anymore when he's talking about this. So it's very symbolic and metaphorical to say the church is in the world as a foreign land because we're not in heaven yet. And so he's saying the world is going to slander you. They're going to call you not loyal. See, back then, if you weren't loyal to Caesar, calling him God, they would say Kaiser, Caesar, Kurios, 
Caesar is Lord. But the Christians would say, Christos kurios, Jesus is Lord. And so they were seen as subversives. They wouldn't pledge loyalty to the army. They wouldn't make the sacrifices that all the Romans did. And so when Peter's writing this, he's writing to a persecuted people in a and he's saying, people are going to call you loyal or not loyal and weirdos, bigoted, the wrong side of history. All the things that we get called today. They're going to call them a whateverist, sexist, racist, misogynist, whatever you want to call it, you know, a whatever, a phobic, right? Because they won't capitulate. Because the world doesn't understand. So Peter is saying, listen, you... Be cooperative enough seeking the good of the city and the people and your good deeds will vindicate you and they will glorify God on the day he visits us. The very next verses in Peter are great because he urges, he says, submit to earthly authority. He says, for it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I love that. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as servants of God. So he's saying, okay, God's servants today and today's, 21st century America, Babylonian exile, obey the proper authority. So follow the speed limit, okay? You came to church for me to tell you to follow the speed limit, okay? I'm trying. Um, <laughs> pay your taxes, obey the authorities, do, you know, cooperate enough. But your motive of, uh, for submission should be your identity as a servant of God, not as one belonging to this culture. He says, live as free men and women, but you're not ultimately bound to this earth because your home is in heaven. In fact, Paul even says later on, you know, he says in his letter to the Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And you know why he's thinking that way? Because he's in jail. Because <laughs> he didn't capitulate. They stuck him in jail. And the whole time he's writing Philippians, he's saying, what can men do to me? To live is Christ. To die is gain. If I keep on living, I'll just get more people to go to the kingdom. But if I die, I'll get to be with Jesus. He's like, I'm untouchable. What you gonna do? Seriously, what you gonna do? I'm in jail already, right? And he's untouchable. He's like, listen, we're away from home. So I build, I plant, I marry, I seek the peace. I, and it's all for God's glory. And then when I go home, all of my longings are fulfilled because I get to be with Jesus. So let the world rage and spin as if this is all there is. Let them scoff at you. Let them revile you. And like Peter says, on the day he visits us and takes us home, there won't be any more ignorant talk by foolish men. And guess what? God will vindicate you. So stop trying to do it yourself now. You don't have to vindicate yourself now. See the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Okay, I hope you did because I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry. It's still worth seeing. But, but here's the idea. A young man, World War II, right? He's loyal, so loyal to the U.S. He wants to join. He joins up for the war effort, but he didn't want to carry a gun because he didn't want to kill people because he had a, a, a nonviolent ethic, right? And so he wants to be a medic. He says, I want to help people, but they require him to carry a gun. And so there's this big standoff, and everybody hates him. They don't think he's loyal, right? Are you, are you really with us? But then during the battle, he goes out and saves dozens of lives, risks his own life, and then what? Glorifies God because he's a believer, and his good deeds vindicate him so that at the end, everybody thinks he's a hero. It was an open conflict against the system because he was willing to join the war. It wasn't capitulation where he, because he wouldn't participate in something that his conscience thought was evil. And he didn't cloister because he didn't hide away. 
Instead, it was limited cooperation. And so the truth of the gospel just showed in his actions. He lived by a different ethic. And though they accused him of doing wrong, his good deeds made them glorify God. It's a beautiful picture. Well, the third example, of course, is Jesus. Okay, so here we go, our ultimate example. So centuries later, centuries after the exile, people are back in the promised land. They're living in Israel again. But now they're under a different oppression. It's not the Assyrians, it's not the Babylonians, it's not the Persians, it's not even the Greeks. It's the Romans now, right? So now they're under this occupation of the Rome, Romans, right? And that, you know, they're, they're trying to say, you know, Kaiser Curios or Christos Curios. And so they're trying to stick it to Jesus here, these guys that are opposing him. And so it's Matthew chapter 22. You can see it. And verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with this truth. You aren't swayed by men because they pay, you pay no attention to who they are. I love that. It's like, He's like, I don't pay attention. You know, I understand them. So he says, um, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Hmm. So they're trying to trap him, right? Jesus, should we capitulate and pay taxes to a Gentile Caesar? Or should we have open conflict with Caesar? Is that better? See, because if Jesus, they know if Jesus says, oh yeah, capitulate, pay your taxes, the whole crowd's going to be upset. And they know if he says, no, 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 open conflict, don't pay your taxes, that stuff doesn't belong to Caesar, the Romans are standing right there to have him arrested. So they think they got him. Nice try, little boys, right? Because it's Jesus. And so it's like, and I already know Jesus isn't going to cloister. So that's not, but Jesus continuing this exile ethic, you know, he chooses neither, of course. He chooses limited cooperation. So in, in verse 18, <coughs> But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, it's beautiful. Uh, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait or image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left and went away. They slithered away, right? Yeah. It's so great. It's so great because here's the idea. And, and, and Jesus kind of sticks it to him here because when he says, whose image is on it? Who's, whose image was on it? Caesar. What was one of the commandments, right? Don't have a graven image. Because on those coins, that was their mass media of the day. It would have said something like, you know, Caesar, son of the divine, right? Calling Caesar God. And here are these Pharisees who are oh, the total law abiders, you know, got this graven image coin. So Jesus' little, like, little dig there, which is great. And so, um, anyway, but why would he use that word image? Where else do we hear the word image? If the coin has Caesar's image, what has God's image on it? Us, people, right? And so he says, give back to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what is God. He says, you know what? Caesar wants this whole economic, social, political system. This, this world has Caesar's fingerprints all over it. Give it to him. He can have it. He says, but you give yourself to God because you are God's image and you have God's fingerprints all over you. So you give to him what belongs to him and which is more valuable us. <clears throat> so that at his trial, you know, Pilate's asking Jesus if he's this king ready to defend his earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, well, it is as you say, you know, and Pilate thinks, okay, well, where's your army? Where's your assassins? Where's your court and your palace? And <clears throat> because he expected open conflict. Jesus isn't interested in taking over the world's kingdoms with stuff like coins and armies. 
So he says, no, I just came back to get what's mine. My most valuable creation, you and me. So we're to give to God's, God what's God's. Our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. Not fight, not capitulate. Just give to God what's God's. So the exile ethic shows that God's battle, battle is not with coins and political power. Give me a break. Military power like Caesar's, but for his people made in his image, his kingdom is not of this world. It's not our home. And again, it's very nuanced, but the good things of, of the earth are gifts of God to prompt our hearts for wanting to be home because we're his. We want to be with him. And so all these longings, these earthly things that are so fleeting and passing away, they're not meant to satisfy us. They're meant to just remind us to show us what we're truly after, where our true longing is with home. I had a conversation a while back um, with my brother's brother-in-law. It was a graduation party, and we were talking about movies and stuff like that. <clears throat> His name is Brand, and I've talked with him about the gospel before. He's just not there, but... Um, I asked him if he had seen the Solo movie, the Star Wars movie, and I had seen Infinity War with Marvel, right? So, you know, Marvel's got this whole big, you know, big overarching story, of course, the whole Star Wars overarching story. We were just talking about that. And I was laughing with him because I said, I was just shaking my head because I told him, I go, Brand, listen, I've told you the gospel, but you were so, it's, Marvel makes it like we're supposed to care so much about these big stories, right? In order to be a true fan, you have to really, really care. So buy your tickets early, see the midnight show, know the characters in the backstory, see all the Easter eggs, stay after the credits and watch the, the, the clip at the end, right? Like in order to be a true fan, you're supposed to know all that. And I'm just, I told him, I go, Brand, I'm just like, eh. Like it doesn't compare to our story. I mean, I wish Christians got as excited about our story and got there early and knew the characters in the backstory and looked for Easter eggs in the Bible. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of Easter eggs in the Bible, one of them being the exile um, and got all the nuances and stuff like that. But I just told him, I go, hey, this whole Avengers thing, it's so stupid because they're trying to manipulate you and draw you in like you're supposed to care. Like you got this villain, Thanos, who kills his adopted daughter so he can get more power and he's crying like I'm supposed to be sad. This guy's trying to kill half of humanity. He's killing his own daughter, and I'm sad. Uh, that's something wrong with that. And I told him, I go, there's all kinds of these holes and contradictions because then all these people die, and I'm like, you're not dead. They got another movie in production for you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, somebody's just got to do one of their little mind tricks, multiverse, travel back in time, other dimension stuff, fix it, and then come back. I'm like, Pfft. like, dude, that's stupid. Reality, reality is such a better story. Am I right? Like our gospel story is so much better than that because we're part of this wonderful epic drama and we're a main character and it's real. Imagine that, it's real. So, um, and it's, it's just funny because it's like now we're looking in this, through this window, this dim little mirror, but Bible says and one day we're gonna see face to face. We're gonna see what our part, we only see part of the story. We're really only seeing the trailer right now. And, and, and there's, when we get home, we get to see the whole film. It's going to be, it's gonna be, we think, you know, right now it's like we're watching on this little 12-inch black and white like I had growing up, you know. And, and, and someday it's going to be like whatever newest 4K kind of something they got going on. It's going to be awesome. But God has placed eternity in our hearts, you guys. And our soul yearns for home and for heaven. 
and we long for eternity. We have no idea how great it's going to be. We can't even imagine it. we got no frame of reference for it. We have nothing to compare it to, only obscured glimpses. And that's what God does. He gives us these glimpses so that our hearts will long for the real thing. So he gives us sunsets. The last 10 minutes. And he gives us loving family moments. And he gives us memories from a song. You hear a song and 20 years back, you're like, oh yeah. Or you hear, you smell cookies and you're like, oh, with grandma. Or the joy of laughter with friends or great food or a warm breeze or a campfire or ocean waves. And they all call us to this bigger story, this deeper longing for security. It's a, it's a soul longing for home, for the real deal. Those little things, those wonderful gifts we get are just these glimpses of what's waiting for us. And so C.S. Lewis in this book, Weight of Glory, calls it the desire for a distant country. So I've got it up here. Just follow along best you can. <clears throat> it's kind of thick, but you'll get it. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we, we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open an inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweet sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes intimate, like when we know we're going to start talking about those deeper things, we grow awkward and we affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell though we desire to do both. Like we want it, but it's so weird to even talk about. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our existence. We cannot hide it because our experience is, so, is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. It's like we all know what we're talking about, but we can't even name it. This part's great. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust it to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if we are mistaken for the, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only, I love this, the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. And so all these beautiful things are just foretaste of all the things that God has for us. And we get so weird and awkward even thinking about it. I mean, you sit and dream about heaven. You can do it for about 10 minutes, and then it's like, right? But what does this mean for today? Well, it means we're to have confidence that God will deliver us through this temporary stay. And so if your marriage is strained or broken right now, it's going to be healed when we get home. If, if work is stressful and money is tight, we don't belong here and we got riches in heaven. If you're worried about your kids and anxious about the future, listen, it's in God's hands. If you're dealing with sickness, we get a new body when we get to heaven. If you're depressed or feeling overwhelmed, he's gonna wipe every tear from your eyes and see him face to face. That's why Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't belong here. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So listen, cheer up, church. <laughs> Crying out loud. Don't let the weight of oppressive world burden you so much. We will soon be home.
And when we are, no more strained relationships, no more rebellious kids, no more divorce and adultery, no more tears, pain, anxiety, no more insomnia, no more medication, no more hospitals, no more chemo, no more funerals, no more 24-hour news cycles, crisis of the day, no more taxes, no more DMV, <laughs> no more commute over the Altamont for a stressful job, no more humiliation, rejection, shame, pride, no more studying for tests, mortgage payments and credit card bills, broken down cars and ACs, no more weight gain and hair loss, amen? No more disappointments, sadness, regrets, harmful memories, no more abuse, no more hurtful words, no more slamming doors, no more crying yourself to sleep, no more mosquitoes, cockroaches, and spiders, no more fears, no more gossip, no more lies, no more therapy, no more loneliness, no more binges, no more finding a few hours of comfort in bottle and pills. No more autism or arthritis, no more back pain or bum knees, no more failures or fatherlessness, no more walkers or wheelchairs, no more debt or depression, no more migraines or melanoma, no more abortion or abandonment, no more striving or suicide, no more insignificance or insecurity, right? Dude, the pain is real. We all feel it a thousand different ways. We're homesick, but we're going home soon. I'm a huge Warriors fan. I really have been since I was a kid. I grew up in Hayward, so I, I, it, it does count. I'm not a bandwagon. Um, I have a picture of me at five years old with a Warriors tank top on, and so I've endured a lot of awful teams, okay? So I'm really pumped about right now. And I'm really weird about big games, because I don't like to watch them live, okay? I don't like the tension. So like game seven against the Rockets this year, I, I didn't watch it in real time. I can't do it. I'd rather just record the game and then know the result first, and then, and then, no, I'm serious. I get the alert on my phone. I get the alert on my phone. And then, I re, and then my reaction's smaller, right? And then if they won, I'll watch it and I'll just appreciate. If they lost, I don't want to see it. I don't even, I didn't even watch like what is it, game three or four or whatever it was. I, didn't even, I just erase it, go, I'm not watching that garbage. You know, because it makes me mad. Because we're so much better than them. And so I'll tell you, it's really fun though. It's really fun when we're down 22 points or whatever in the third quarter, you know the Warriors, and, 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 and I know they won. And I'm like, oh man, how are they gonna do this tonight? You know? And Steph makes this unbelievable three from 10 feet behind the arc, and I'm like, dude! You know, I can just appreciate how amazing it is because I know that we won. <laughs> it's a good strategy, right? It is a good strategy. It, it saves myself hours of tension. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. You know why some people live with so much tension? It's because they're living as if it's only right now, as if everything is in real time, as if there is no eternity, as if they don't know what's gonna happen. Friends, we got the alert, okay? It's come through. We won. The game's over. We won, right? So, exactly. So, it's okay to go back and watch the game now, <laughs> okay? If you feel like your life, you're down 22 in the third, just know that you win, all right? And so just watch how God's gonna deliver you this time. Watch God make like a full court three-pointer, be like buckets, you know, and that kind of thing. It's just whatever, it's gonna happen that way. And, and the thing, live like the game is over because it is, we won. You can enjoy the rest of the game, and so the story of the Old Testament exile is one of being swept out of the promised land and then being brought back home and to a place and it's of, of pure joy and security and, and stuff. But we're more than overcomers. Because if the earth is all there is, 
then all those little things that you worry so much about are important. But it's not. This is not our home. We don't belong here. We're exiles in a foreign land. We were made for more. And so this world and everything that happens here does not make or break us because we're not staying here. So don't capitulate. Don't become like the world. Don't treat everything like a winner-take-all conflict because ultimately it doesn't matter. And don't cloister away and lose your impact with people either. But cooperate. In a limited way, seek the good of the city and pray and build houses and plant gardens and marry in the land, but do so as a sojourner until he calls us home. And listen, if you don't know Christ yet, and this all sounds great, but you, you, this longing for home doesn't excite you because you don't know if you're going there, let me urge you, please, this is God beckoning you. All those desires are God drawing you to say this is a taste of what it is. So take the sin and the mistakes and the failures and everything, all the shame that you have and place it at his feet because he's already died for it 2,000 years ago. It's over. Let him take your pain and shame away. Allow him to be your father and adopt you as his child into his family and come home. Okay? Do that. And if you need to talk about it, please come grab one of us and talk about it. Don't leave here today until you have your ticket stamped to home, all right? So we have this wonderful song coming up. Let me pray this song. I love this song because I think it just explains our, uh, our situation wonderfully. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. We do love you. And Father, I thank you that you have created this for us. Lord, I thank you that you give us glimpses of what home is gonna be like. Lord, I thank you that you're so patient with us when we don't act like it. And I thank you that you have... Um, provided for us. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to live in this world. Help us to live for you with the right mentality. Help us to love people that are unlovable. Help us to, to make good decisions and not give in, to, to make the gospel the most pro prominent, preeminent thing. And most of all, Lord, help us to be so assured of our salvation that it gives us a confidence to go forward into the day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.